Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us this year as we follow the adventures of two small and very important ring bearers in The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, and then also something you liked or didn't like or noticed or want to talk about in the chapter. Yeah. Um, my name is Sophia. Um, I'm studying comparative literature, I just told you that. Um, and I really like how... So in, in this day and age, people are like, what happens to death of the author when you can just tweet at authors and be like, hey, answer this question, and most of the time people actually do it. And I really like how at the end of Concerning Hobbits, you get that vibe with like the Hobbit record keepers. Like both Bilbo like avails himself of all like living and written sources in Rivendell. So we constructed a solid headcanon that like, Bilbo could be asking other people, but whenever he has a question, he just goes and bothers Elrond at the most inconvenient time. So, like, El- Elrond will be, like, healing up a critically wounded Dunedain or something, and then Bilbo will just come in and be like, Hey, Elrond, Elrond, I'm, I'm writing this book. Could you clarify, like, the color of your foster father's hair for me, please? There's some conflicting accounts. Um, <laughs> just like, I am covered in blood. <laughs> So what I really liked about the first chapter is as you read about the hobbits, you you realize kind of in, in some sense Bilbo and Frodo are not typical hobbits because you know hobbits tend to in this chapter they come across as very you know, family oriented and you know quite tribal people who live in you know, these extended family structures. So in that sense, Bilbo and Frodo seem kind of unusual. Hi, I'm Molly. I'm studying English literature, and um, like with the question of the death of the author, I'm quite interested in where Tolkien doesn't give you further information. Quite similar in The Hobbit, where it's like, there's this really interesting fact, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> it's like, Gandalf, what are you doing? Tell us the story. <laughs> I'm interested in how that works out with like the stuff that he's focusing on and how a lack of information impacts. I'm Ryan. I'm a philosophy major. Um, I liked so many things. Um, 
But I think I, I just liked the the Hobbit vibe um, so much. I just like that small town, um, you know, everybody everybody knows everybody feel. Um, it reminds me of home a lot. Like when um, when the old gaffer was like explaining um, Bilbo's relations. Like it reminded me of just like sitting and listening to my grandma talk over <laughs> coffee, and it's like. And then this is your second cousin twice removed, Ryan, and she married this person, and then I'm like. And then that relates to the nephew of the person who just died his funeral I was telling you about, even though you don't know them. Um, <laughs> so, that was great. And I also feel like I would get along very well with Mary Adopt Randy Buck. We would have a lot to talk about. And I'd like to learn a thing or two about pipeweed. Um, I'm Anne. I'm a political science major. And honestly, like... Yeah, I really like just going into this chapter and like it's been a while since I read it so or these chapters and it's just like all the little details that I forgot just like rereading them again it's just so funny like how they go around the hobbit hole and they find like a few hobbits just in begging like in Bilbo's house and they're just chilling there trying to like break walls and stuff like that and <laughs> I honestly like forgot about that and so reading and it's just like awesome because I kind of like see all the details that I forgot about. Um, I'm Robert, I'm in CompSci, and I've realized how much of a token nerd I've become because uh, Concerning Hobbits was, was amazing, and I was enthralled by the first, uh, you know, before you got to the story. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is what it is. No, I, I, I've always loved Concerning Hobbits, especially the way he presents it in, like, an academic discourse. Like, this is the generally accepted theory, but let's be real here, guys. If we look at the evidence, this is what happened. <laughs> like, he's actually engaging in sort of scholarly debate with his own scholars in his own world over his own story, which is beautiful. I'm not gonna lie, that's, like, half my notes. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I also love just how fabulously wealthy Bilbo is and how everybody wants to get a piece of it and everyone's speculating as to where he's hidden all this wealth after so much time. What was your name? Cole. Oh, my, sorry. My name's Cole. I'm studying mathematics and linguistics. Hi, I'm Joseph. I'm studying mathematics and music. Uh, I'm also the starry treasurer for this way. We... There's a number of Astari here, and they didn't announce their, their titles, but it's kind of important that like, club members know who they are. Um, <laughs> everything from this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I really liked Concerning Hobbits and also Concerning Pipeweed, but what I kind of didn't like is like if you're approaching this as like a first-time reader, which a lot of people, especially back in the day, were, suddenly getting this massive info dump is both perplexing and incredibly bold of Tolkien to just fit all this, like, as you're saying, it's like a historical discussion between scholars. I also really like the fact that it starts with a bunch of, like, small rural English gossip and, like, family trees, and it makes me envision an entirely different, like, story that's happening while, like, the Fellowship is away, and it's just, like, a period drama, but every character is hobbits, and it's just fighting each other over Bilbo's inheritance. It'd be great. Speaking of gossip, okay, so I'm Sarah. <laughs> I'm an English major um, and one of the events coordinators. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed was actually like Tolkien's propensity to 
gossip and try and disguise it as something else. <laughs> like, I pointed that out specifically. There's one place where, like, like the gaffer said something about how nice Drogo was until he was drowned. And, like, <laughs> and it says they knew what had happened and they heard this story before, both more tame and more salacious versions of it, but they all really liked family history <laughs> and would therefore like to hear it again. And I'm like, that's not family history, it's gossip. He's <laughs> trying to excuse his own innately nosy nature by making a whole race of creatures who are as gossipy as he is. I, I feel like he knows this. that he's innately gossipy, though, and he's also kind of making fun of himself. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so funny. I also really liked how he tried to create demand for the Silmarillion by mentioning Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, probably in hopes that someone would be like, oh, what's that, and ask him for it, and then he could publish the Silmarillion. And that cracks me up. Did anybody actually ask him to publish the Silmarillion? Like, oh yeah. People, the reason, the reason that the appendices were accepted in the first place was that, like, people kept being like, what about this? Tell me more about that. And he's like, well, I can write some appendices. I've got some information on for you on that bit. Um, but people just kept asking him for more and more, honestly. Yeah. I never really heard the final reason why he didn't, like, or did he, was, he was always in the It was never finished. So, yeah. It was never finished, and for a while, like, the publishers weren't terribly interested in him finishing it. The publishers were always concerned about, um, the sellability of books and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. which is why it was pub- The Lord of the Rings was published the way and when it was. Um, very much not how Tolkien wanted it. Same thing as for the summer. Which we're gonna talk about in a moment. Um, my preliminary question for this is, uh, so what did we learn about hobbits <laughs> in Concerning Hobbits? What does it tell us about hobbits? Yeah. There are a lot of different kinds of hobbits, and you need to be sure what kind of hobbit you're dealing with before you go into it. <laughs> there are a lot of different kinds of hobbits, but they're all Englishmen from like, <laughs> late 19th century. <laughs> yeah, they've all intermingled at this point. There's, there's no pure bloodlines, if you will, of hobbits. They're all intermarried at this point. I mean, like, if you go to a random English village, that is also the case. So. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> I have met all these people. <laughs> Just the taller versions. They're all like... Yeah, yeah. That's correct. Well, it's, it's kind of shocking how, no matter where you are in the world, this is how rural towns work. Like, everyone knows everyone, there's so much gossip, people smoke a lot. <laughs> But, but it's interesting that um, he has such specific, like, genetic things marked out yeah. for the different strands of hobbits. Like, because if you go to a small town in Alberta, you know, there's, there's, there's every type of white people you could want, you know? Um, there's the French Canadians, and there's the Ukrainians, and there's the, a couple of Italians, and the Englishmen, you know? Um, and, like, the names are important in terms of their lineage, but, like, I don't see much genetic... It, the genetic differences aren't as clear-cut as he tends to describe it. Maybe it's different in Wainwright, I don't know. It's, like, there's definitely, like, a sort of, like, semi-Ukrainian... I mean, it's getting, like, more and more, like, less recognizable. It's just slot people out that way, anyway. Yeah, well, but, like, I imagine if you were to talk to your grandmother, there's, like, a certain look to each family, at least back from her day. French-Canadians are stocky. It's true. <laughs> so, 
bringing that to hobbits, <laughs> um, we could talk about the question of the three kinds of hobbits, like the Harfoots, the Stores, and the Thalhides. So my question for you guys is like, Tolkien gives us information about all of them. What are the implications of the information we get? Like, what are we supposed to be assuming based on the descriptions of these three kinds of hobbits? Hi. Hi. Bilbo and Frodo, as well as, like, the brand new books and the toasts that are actually mentioned there, um, they're all going to be descendants of Thalides. Yeah. Yeah. And it's noticeable because Thalides are leaders and also whiter. Which is a specific description so, of Frodo. Okay, so the Fallowheads specifically are a northerly branch, more friendly with elves, more skill in language and song than in handicrafts, and they used to be hunters, as opposed to everyone who was just like farmers for as long as we can remember. Um, they crossed the mountains north of Rivendell, came down the Horwell, um, were bolder and more adventurous, leaders or chieftains, um, and yeah, in Bilbo's time there was a strong Falahidish strain in the Tooks and the Masters of Buckland. What is, does that remind you guys of anything? Is this supposed to be English history, um, with the Romans, the Celts, and the Anglo-Saxons? Oh, so that's definitely one of them, and I have that in here, actually, if I find it. Um... I'm not sure if it works with that because it's not a one for one correspondence. Yeah. Here we go. Okay, so what this had was um, I'm going to read some Hobbit heritage and history. Um, if we look at the evolution and history of the Hobbit races and the Anglo Saxon tribes, we see an obvious pattern. The origins of both are lost in the mists of time somewhere beyond a distant and massive eastern range of mountains. The ancestors of both the hobbits and the Anglo-Saxons migrated across these mountains and eventually settled in a fertile river delta region. Um, eventually, war and invaders forced the hobbits to leave their second homeland known as the Angle, a wedge of land between the Loudwater and Horwell rivers, and migrate across the Brandywine River into what eventually became known as the Shire of Middle-earth. Similarly, war and invaders forced the Anglo-Saxons to leave their homeland, known as the Angle, a wedge of land between the Schley River and Flensburg Fjord, and migrate across the English Channel into what eventually became known as the Shires of England. Furthermore, there are three breeds or tribes of hobbits, Fellahides, Stores, and Harfoots, which are directly comparable to the three races or tribes of English, Saxons, Angles, and Jutes. Finally, we find the hobbit founders of the Shire were the brothers Marcho and Blanco, while the Anglo-Saxon founders of England were the brothers Hengist and Horsa. Um, which is particularly interesting, because Hengist and Horsa both mean horse, and the argument here is that Marcho comes from the Welsh, Gaelic, and Old English horse, which actually Tolkien also uses to construct Miras, like when you get to Rohan, and Blanco comes from some old Norse thing that means white horse. So I feel like that's probably deliberate there. Um, I would kind of question this idea that there's a direct one-to-one -one parallel between the three 
types or whatever of Anglo-Saxons and the three hobbits, because I don't think Tolkien himself would have liked that. <laughs> it's a little too clear-cut or, you know, allegorical. But, yeah. Strong reference there. Does it say anything about the, the Celts? Celts? Yeah, didn't mention, didn't Celts. mention the Celts. Oh, Celts. Because um, when I was reading it, like, not really. the Celts to me seemed most like the Thalohites, you know, kind of that, like, adventurous out in the bush, um, and tall and um, fair-haired. That's, that's, that's a Celt. That's an interesting idea, although it does not really tie as well with the whole one sort of origin yeah. east of the mountains and then migrating all together and then splitting up. There's some general discussion in here of, like, the relation of hobbits to Celtic brownies and similarities. So there's that. Their thesis is kind of like, the name hobbits relates them more to hobs, which is a more, like, Anglo-Germanic form of woodland sprite. But their actual nature is more similar to brownies in that they're kind of just helpful and nice. So the the sort of thesis that he's making here is that he's basically turning the Celts English. He doesn't he doesn't want Celticness in his world, which we see in his letters where he's like, mm, we have we we don't have any British mythology. We have Celtic mythology, but that's not that's not what I want. <laughs> so that sort of country gentry sort of. Englishized Celtic forest spirits in a way, if that makes any sense. Who's not fighting? Yeah, uh, so the difference between the, the Utes, the Angles, and the Saxons is already, like, at Tolkien's time and place of vigorous scholarly debate, because there were a lot of lines that people tried to draw, and they, there were linguistic lines, but then those broke down, and they were, like, tribal lineage lines, but then, <laughs> so it's... It's interesting. It's a bit weird. It's kind of hard to get to pre-written history. Yeah. So that's like one interpretation. I think there's also the interpretation like within Tolkien's world. Um, so what we learned about the Thalahides, that they're, you know, taller, um, into more to music. Um, hunter-gatherers rather than farmers associated strongly with the elves and with they came over in the north also kind of reminds me of the three houses of the Adain, where the Falhides are the people of Baor um, and the you know Harfoots and Stores are the people of um, Haleth and the people of Havel except the town houses of Hobbit's got like Accidentally exterminated. This is true. <laughs> yeah. I. This probably isn't a very true allegory, but you could have, um, instead of the three being, like, of course, this is probably not the case, but it kind of works too with the Britons, um, the Scots, and the Irish as the three groups. With the Britons being the ones down by the rivers who associated with men with the Scots being the sort of ones um, who associated more with the dwarves and with the Irish being the ones for the more, um, I forget what they're called. And the Falahides. Yeah, the, the Falahides. The more adventurous. Yeah. Of course, the, I know that wasn't what Tolkien was thinking, but 
it sort of works. <laughs> it, it kind also, of does. unlikely, considering. I mean, I mean, it, like some of the association makes sense, um, but first one probably Tolkien would want to reach further back because it's like that, but also um, because of associations with the Irish in general. Yeah, you're not. You're not gonna find, delivered or not, you're probably not going to find Tolkien comparing the people that he clearly thought were like probably the most important of hobbits with the Irish people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I see. <laughs> um, so that's like one question of this, right? Is like, what can you relate that idea of the three groups of hobbits to? The other question is like, within Tolkien's own logic and within Tolkien's own network of associations, what is he saying about each of these groups, right? Oh, those are the best. Yes. yes. Would you like to elaborate on that, Tristan? That's all. Um, <laughs> Tolkien has a considerable lineage of habits of associating height with inherent goodness, um, but also with the ability to make bigger and more long-lasting mistakes. Elves. Um, so... By virtue of the Fallowhides both being designated as the leaders and being the tall and more adventurous, they are more associated with greater deeds. Which makes sense because the only hobbits who ever go out and do really great deeds are Frodo, Mary, and Pippin, and a little bit of Sam. He doesn't do great deeds, though. But, like, Sam is a Fallowhide. He's not. Sam is a. Well, I mean, he's like a quintessential hobbit. As opposed to everyone else who's like a weird hobbit by hobbit standards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, there's also, I, I, like, I agree with Justin, that was what I got out of this, was that just the more Tolkien you read, the more you're like, oh, the North, good. Tall, good. Pale, good. Elves, good. <laughs> you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, and I don't think it's necessarily that, like, deterministic, but... Um, yeah, he also associates them with different types, right? The Harfoots are associated with <coughs> dwarves, I think. The stores with men. Yeah. Either of you? You still have something to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, no, obviously their association with arts is a big deal, as opposed to doing stuff with their hands. Mm-hmm. Elevates them. Yeah, we can also see, like, parallels between the three. Well, it's almost, like... It's immediately obvious when you compare that the um, the fallow hides are like most used in adventure, and they tie with the elves. That kind of works perfectly. And then you have the harfoots, where they're tied with the dwarves and more into craft. And then you have the ones where they're tied into men, which seem more like trading. And so it's almost like the three types of hobbits sort of mirror the three types of general mortals or immortals, general sentient beings of Middle Earth as well. Three peoples. Yeah, that's three people. And you also have, again, like, like literal elevation is already being associated with metaphorical like elevation. Like in Tolkien, the closest you are, the closer you are to the elves, like I don't know, the more you have been elevated spiritually, and also just in terms of literal knowledge, which is even mentioned in here, in that building originally came from the elves, and letters originally came from the elves to the Dunedain, to the Hobbits kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, you have that sense that the tallest people are also the ones who are possibly the most elf-like. Yeah. 
So, the Turks and Brandy Bucks are described as specifically Fallow Hydesh, but I'm curious where we fall on the Bagans specific. Because Bilbo is mostly Bagans with a bit of Turk. Mm-hmm. Or Bagans and Turk, and um, Frodo is Bagans and Brandy Bucks. So they both have that half Fallowhide side, but it seems like the Bagans side isn't, as we spent a lot of time discussing in our last book study. Yeah. Do we ever get a descriptor of how tall the Baggins are? Like, is Frodo tall for a hobbit? Yes. 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 Uh, Frodo is taller than most. Is he taller than Bilbo? It doesn't say he's taller than Bilbo. The description of him is just that he's taller than most. Like, he's taller than Merry and Pippin until they grow. Yeah. And become the most tall hobbits ever. I think, so this had, this has different names, and I'm trying to remember where it put Baggins. Um, Baggins is a No, but I mean, like it says that, um, yeah, it doesn't really say... It just says, the fair-haired fallowhides are suggested by many family names such as fair, barren, gold, and goldworthy. Their unconventional and independent nature and their intelligence are suggested by names such as headstrong and boffin. Yeah. Um, I would assume that the Bagginses came from the Harfoot line. Just because the Harfoots were the most numerous so after they started mingling, they would probably have the strongest uh, genetics, but they uh, are also the most normal rep- rep- and representative variety of hobbit, and most inclined to settle in one place, and they longest preserved the ancestral habit of living in tunnels and holes. Yeah. yeah. So, again, that would be very That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like a strong argument would be that like the took half of Bilbo and the brandy buck half of Frodo is like the Fallahide strain and the Megan half of like the Harfoot strain. That's genetically and temperamentally in this case. Still that is kind of described as like the Hobbit's Hobbit too. Mm-hmm. Just round. <laughs> Roundest Hobbit. <laughs> machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom. So, what level of technological development are the hobbits at? What does this mean? Hi. They have revolvers. <laughs> I looked this up last night. I was like, when was the hand loom invented? I get the other two, but I'm like wondering about the loom. What else was invented around that time? So, um, the flying shuttle wasn't invented until 1733, and that was what made looms able to be operated by only one person. When you look up a hand loom, that's like what you get. That's, that's what people talk about. Um, and lots of things were invented before the flying shuttle, including the compound microscope and the revolver. On the other hand, it's double-entry bookkeeping. On the other hand, they don't have guns. It's pretty yeah. explicitly it's stated pretty that they have bows and arrows, and they still use those. And so it's wild. I like how you've got that, and it kind of stands out as like, did Tolkien look this up? Does he know when the handling was invented? Does he mean something else? We're going to sleep around that way. There's also a section in the letters where he specifically states that he regrets including the handloom. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I recall us discussing that. Does anyone have a letter somewhere? Hmm? No. no. I'll bring it next week. That's so delightfully obscure, though, that I kind of just love it on principle. Okay, I feel like I feel like what that means is that he looked it up later and was like, "Wait, I have erred. I have made a terrible mistake." <laughs> they shouldn't have indoor plumbing. I mean, the other thing is that it indicates that it's pre-industrial revolution because hand looms kind of went away after, you know, we got big looms. Um, actually, when I read that, I interpreted hand loom as in a strap back loom that you hold mm-hmm. with a hand and do the mm-hmm. strings like this, but I, I guess that was not what he meant. But uh, yeah, that was the image that came to mind. It's also that, like, it's uh, kind of like a, a bad assumption to conflate invention with like technological dispersal. Because handguns existed, like there's theories that some early handguns existed as soon as uh, like gunpowder arrived in Italy. But basically, only the very, very rich would have to. They'd be kind of like an oddity as opposed to like an actual part of warfare or daily life. So there might be a hobbit with a handgun somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, well, look at this oddity, isn't it great? I can shoot something from like almost a mile away. It's just the mayor of Mechadel. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's passed down. It's and all, all the rest of the hobbits are being typical hobbits. Like, we don't trust this thing. It's, it's heavy. I think it's also notable that hobbits are kind of a story of very deliberate anachronism. Mm-hmm. You can't attribute any one historical period to them in a way that makes sense because they're just not meant to be that way. Uh-huh. I mean, Middle-earth isn't, isn't big on gunpowder yet. No. Everyone's still amazed by Gandalf with his... Parlor tricks, you know. The so. only person using gunpowder in Middle Earth is Saruman and Gandalf. They haven't really spread it around yet, so it's fine. You don't need enemy firearms. <laughs> but again, like, what, what, what would the society of hobbits? Um, what type of technological advancements would they make? You know, um, like they're not industrial in the same sense, right? Like they're. I think the key line was they were generous but not greedy. And for like the Industrial Revolution, it required greed. Um, whoa, like. <laughs> so, like, the horse collar, maybe they could make if they had horses, but they don't. They have ponies. Um, if that, even that. But, like, they. Hello. 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 Um, yeah, yeah, like, the, 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 the inventions they're going to make aren't going to be for like extreme convenience or to make a massive profit. It's going to be like, I want a bigger pumpkin. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say kitchen improvements. I want to have the largest pumpkin kitchen at improvements. the fair this like, October. I bet they have some really refined cooking techniques, you know? Um, and they're, they, they're pretty good with like genetic modifications for their pipe weed. You know, like it, it's, it's what type of oh, yeah. inventions are their society going to create? Well, we know that they are breeding different strains of pipe weed. Like, like that's, canon. that's pretty developed. <laughs> I would also empires, that's like page three. So, I would, sorry. I would also say, based on like what they're likely to invent, hobbits much more likely to invent a better way of making clothes. Revolvers really useless yeah. unless you're going to go out and shoot someone. Yeah. Like yeah. they're not a hunting weapon, even. Yeah. Um, which could make sense for the invention of a rifle if they 
also if I had gunpowder, but they don't. <laughs> um, but something like that, the disparate nature, how, how far away they are from war, means that their scale of invention would differ from humanity's vastly. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna give you the last point. Um, and Tolkien's pretty explicit in here about uh, how they don't create things that displace labor, which is why family businesses can stay the same for many generations, or however he, he phrases it. So that kind of goes to your point that he, hobbits aren't about mass production and greed, which also probably ties into their isolationism. They don't have anybody to export to, so they have no reason to mass produce shirts or pants. Especially because, um, if I remember correctly, like uh, Lord of the Rings was partially um, Tolkien's attempt at creating a mythology that was very English. So the idea of like um, kind of like someone telling a myth, um, or like a to an, another person and that person being in our universe, I think. Um, maybe that's what I feel. Um, I really it, that, that technique of being like that explicit narrator, um, it really connected it with The Hobbit for me, and like the fairy tale genre, much more than the rest of the book. So you can really see how he's, he's writing that first chapter as a, as a sequel to The Hobbit. Um, but again, like it's, he's, he's writing as Tolkien, I thought, um, as him describing it as if this was actual history on our world or a parallel one. Um, so, I, Ryan Beaupre, am the audience he is speaking to. Did you have a Hi, sorry. Uh, I don't think there is like a definite 
person that you're supposed to embed yourself in, in this. Because you like it says stuff like hobbits were related and all that. There's not really like a group that we as an audience can kind of assume into. Hobbits are already that group for us, right? And I think the idea of like framing this as kind of your part of the story is much more so that you have that attachment to hobbits going into this. And you have that feeling of like being part of this narrative as opposed to being like a like a omniscient godlike figure that looks at this story. That's a good point. Um, I think what Cole was saying too also really struck me was the fact that um, this isn't quite a fairy tale narrator. This isn't like a you know a grandfather telling this story by the fireside because at this point. Bye, Tristan. Bye, Tristan. This isn't a story. Um, in a lot of ways, this reads as an ethnography. Like, this reads like a work of 1950s anthropology, where you're describing who this people is, where they came from, what their contact with other peoples were, what their linguistic history was, how you know this. There's, like, this really strong influence on where knowledge comes from like down to the hilarious minutia of this is here are the different copies of the red book made by different scribes this part is oral history this is when the hobbits took an interest in writing it down and that was really interesting to me yeah which relates to some of the older work that he did like in older styles that he used for the Silmarillion too um, especially like the Notion Club papers. Um, so Notion Club papers were like kind of connected to Middle Earth, but also not. Where I think I think what it included was a character who keeps having dreams of of, of a giant wave again. That that Tolkien refrain um, that includes um, that's mo- it's mostly about like the narrative uh, narrative of the downfall of Numenor. Um, but one of the things included in the Notion Club papers is like a linguistic treatise on the languages of Middle Earth and stuff like that. Um, and so Tolkien takes this this pseudo academic look through a lens that is meant to make it seem like this is history that we've lost and someone is discovering. The same way that you have narratives of like Penglov, who's also involved in the Notion Club papers, or Elfhorn. Pengelov is another scribe character. Yeah. So there's Tolkien has a tradition of scribe characters within his work, framing it. Yeah. Who learn something and then translate it or write it down or retell it. Someone else have their hand. I'm gonna jump in then. I also like I thought that the focus on text was so interesting in this section like the first sentence of this story isn't the first sentence of a long expected party it's not the first sentence about Bilbo Baggins like when you're in creative writing you talk about first sentences a lot right the first sentence of the Lord of the Rings is this book is largely concerned with hobbits and from its pages a reader may discover much of their character and a little of their history. So I thought it was really cool that immediately in the first sentence, your attention is directly drawn to the fact that you are reading a book. 
the fact that this is like a physical object is really important in its own universe where it goes on to again describe like when people learn to write what books exist and when they were copied um and so i have some notes on on the actual book on this is a book um tolkien had one typed final copy this is what we learned in the letters um he had like he it was it, it's in the foreword here where he writes like that he couldn't pay for professional typing so he was able to type one complete up-to-date copy and that copy was sent back and forth in the mail to and from his like publishers and sent back with annotations which is terrifying because <laughs> if that one copy had been lost like the Lord oh of the Rings boy exist. oh boy um this book when it came out was incredibly expensive by the standard of books at the time i don't remember the exact numbers but there's a lot of Tolkien in his letters to people saying, yeah, you know, if you have the money, please buy this book. I know it's really expensive, um, both because it was so big um, and like the cost of printing was so prohibitive that that contributed to it having to be split up into three volumes. Um, but even those individual three volumes were very expensive because they were big because you had to hand carve the plates for the illustrations. So that includes the maps, which were done by Christopher, and like the Moria gate that we'll get to, the ring inscription. So Tolkien would do an ink copy of that, and then they would, you know, have to make an actual plate to print that based on Tolkien's illustration. Bye. Um, so that made this really expensive and also something of an anomaly. Like, I'm, I'm now I'm finally getting to Joseph's point, but like maps, the fact that this had maps would have, like, would have been weird. Now it's just normal that you pick up a fantasy novel and it has maps in it. But at the time, this is specifically Tolkien being like, no, this is a device that I need. It is necessary for the story, and the story is going to be incomprehensible unless there's maps. So I think that's really cool, too, because this is, like, now maps are a standard part of fantasy fiction, but back before fantasy fiction was even an established thing, in a way it's contributing to the academic framing of this as a text by Tolkien. Um, and the last ramble that I got really excited about was that like, a lot of people credit, um, like, a lot of Tolkien's contemporaries in other contexts. So, for example, like, Jorge Luis Borges is an Argentinian writer who's really well known for kind of creating magical realism as a thing. Um, and he's also really well known for writing short works that experiment with language, um, genre, and type. So he'll write like magical things as encyclopedia entries. Um, he writes really weird stories that are like little enigmas that play with memory, that play with type, that sometimes they'll just have a list of articles published by a fake academic. And like, 
I was so interested by that and by the whole idea of like magical realism because in a way I feel like Tolkien has more affinities to that in some ways than to his own literary tradition where this is again an academic treatise on a completely made up thing with invented sources with invented textual histories and that's wild that's my rant I'm sorry hi yes like I would just point out how <laughs> ridiculous it is that he would do something like that um because like I think in the time to say like to make this um, fake academic treatise like maybe you can see some of it in H.G. Wells um like the time machine's almost portrayed as that um but like it takes a heck of a mind to do that like even here um at the U of A like I, I would know of two philosophy profs one of whom is my favorite, Dr. Kastelak, you're the best if you're listening, um, who, who would like do the historiography of the philosophy and they're talking about like, and then there's this manuscript in this random um, university in Germany that I'm gonna go visit in spring or whatever, um, or, or whatever it might be, um, to trace those individual manuscripts and to have like the entire world framed around like the lineage of knowledge, um, like that's a that's a super obscure thing even today, and I think in Tolkien's time it was even more obscure and required a heck of a lot. So I have one more comment and one more question before I will give this over to Sarah, who's been very patient this whole time. I'm less worried about my time and more worried about the fact that you were sick for a, the first full week of school, and now you're deciding not to go to class. But okay. Sick. <laughs> um, okay, my one more comment is on lore in this chapter, and please just throw things in if you have comments, because I'm sorry for talking at you guys about things in here, but I think it's really interesting that lore is now like an accepted thing, like you have the lore of a game, but what lore meant in Tolkien's time isn't the same thing as what fan lore means now. Like, lore traditionally, according to the OED, is a body of traditions and knowledge on a subject or held by a particular group, typically passed from person to person by word of mouth. So when Tolkien talks about Hobbit lore, he is talking about what exactly? What they think about themselves and their own history. Mm -hmm. And like specific sources, specific things. He actually like conducts a meta anthropological analysis of his own fictional myth in here when he says, like, so you can kind of tell that this is the region they came from based on their mythology, which is an actual thing that people do and is part of Tolkien's interests in like myth and its relation to land. Robert yeah, he brings it up, especially uh, the thing that caught my eye was when they're talking about like the king granting them some land because they were supposed to cross a bridge and keep it under repair. And then he goes back and says, well, it was probably this king because of the time period this would have been in. And then it would have been this bridge around this time. And these things would have been happening in the greater world right around them, um, which they wouldn't know, but they passed on the lore of the like the outline of their, their history, their story. They can work with that. Um, one interesting um, 
thing, especially because you brought up what we consider lore now, nowadays in like fantasy books and stuff like that, is um, like the historical collective nature of lore, like how like there is like how it's like a thing shared by a group where you can't always pinpoint um, this is where this thing comes from or this is where this thing comes from because it's just such a collective thing. Where now with lore, um, there's almost like this trend I feel like in fantasy and stuff like that, where like the author will just tell you everything. Uh, it was like this one voice of truth where it's like, um, uh, I mean, the most obvious case, like J.K. Rowling right now will like give um, all of like the minutia of uh, this like uh, like the history, where it's like I think Tolkien is almost trying to like even though he's still the one voice of truth, truth he's trying to make it seem much more of like this fluid collective um, lore to. That's a really good point. I actually want to like take Bryn's comment and like just pin it for this entire like book pretty much as the general question of like where is knowledge coming from? Who owns it? How's Tolkien playing with the ideas of collective knowledge traditions and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to it all. I'd also say so, yeah. Part of the cool thing about lore being somewhat ambiguous um, and never complete um, has to do with, well, what is that culture um, dealing with and what are its values? Um, and that's going to establish a lot of what your lore is, right? Like, what's the, one of the most fundamental books in the Hobbit culture for their lore? Um, well, it's the herbology of the Shire because pipeweed's important. Um, but you know, like, when we came over the mountains, well, I have a pumpkin to grow, you know? So it, it has to do a lot with their, um, their, their values, right? Um, but that being said, then it's cool to look at the um, connections when you're doing like this historiography of different myths and different lores to see the connections between values and to be like, oh my gosh, cultures are like really, really similar across the world. That's a very good point. Yeah. Does anyone else have anything you'd like to add about anything in concerning comments? Actually, no, I won't say. Okay. Fair enough. Moving on to a long-expected party, you now get questions of a very different kind. Um, because, uh, so, uh, you're going to have a lot of fun today because all my questions are really weird and not necessarily the kind of questions you were doing semester. Um, I want to start with talking about the nature of belonging and like the relationship of hobbits to the other. Because the first thing that I noticed, <laughs> hear me out, the first thing that I noticed when I was reading this is how many times people are described as queer, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, meaning like they're different over there, right? Especially Bucklanders and especially Bilbo. Um, so, what does that say about the hobbits, and how does Bilbo navigate his social position? Um, it made me shit Bilbo and the gaffer, which I wasn't expecting. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. The story um, had some exasperation. That wasn't a comment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, 
sort of the, the perception I got when combined with some of the stuff we got earlier is that the, the hobbits are really built on social norms and how you play into it. And the sort of perception of Bilbo is like, oh, he's dangerous, don't go too near him, but he's got a lot of money, so, you know, keep him on your good side. And, you know, when he's gone, we'll have all that stuff and we won't have to deal with him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> sense just normal societal norms um, where no Bilbo Bilbo's a good guy and that that, that transcends just he's a bit odd um, which is cool like when you were mentioning at the very beginning about gossip um, and I'm talking if it's religious gossip like I think you're right but I'm also going to support Tolkien a bit because like it's it's gossip because he's describing a small town but then he's also having like the gaffer is this really great guy um, who, who's like telling stories, but it's not gossip of the same sort. Like gentleman rule number one is never discuss someone's faults behind their back or never discuss their virtues to their face. Like he's talking about Bilbo as a good guy, and he gets mad at people who are actually gossiping. That was a lot, sorry. Yeah. I really like how in the foreword there's a little note where Tolkien's like, yeah, I mean, I, I never did like the Miller. His name wasn't Sandy Man. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I think is interesting about the way that Bilbo navigates his, like, otherness is that he's got this reputation now, and he kind of saves his reputation by using his wealth to be, like, the ultimate hobbit. Like, he comes home, and sometimes he goes away, but when he's at home, he is, he, he embodies, like, his father's tradition. Um, and you see that in, like, the way he throws a party. Um, 
And the fact that he's like, you know what I'm going to do that's going to leave my reputation perfectly intact? Give great gifts before I go. Um, Like, he knows his audience and he knows what's expected of him. And that's kind of demonstrated by the fact that, like, they talk about the adoption of Frodo when they're gossiping about him. Um, And they're like, yeah, and then his parents died. And he probably wouldn't have turned out very well if he had stayed to be raised by those queer Bucklanders. But Bilbo brought him here, but he's been raised among mostly normal folk. Which kind of implies that Bilbo is giving him a solid Hobbit upbringing, despite Bilbo's own reputation. Um, I think that's really interesting. Also, he does it by, like, giving away a lot of money. <laughs> Bilbo is just Hobbit celebrity culture. And, uh, like, um, just another thing that I thought really demonstrated his ultimate Hobbit nature is with the... He gives a lot of gifts, and it makes a point to say that he... There's a lot of in the Hobbit gift-giving culture because there's so much of it going on all the time. They tend to, I think, re-gift thing in the form of the Mathams, but they make a point to say that Bilbo really likes... He keeps the gifts that people give him, and he gives people new things instead of this re-gifting that maybe is more common among less Moloch Hobbits. Yeah. Fun fact, I found out this holiday that giving people other presents on your birthday is also the Greek tradition. One of the interesting things I thought about this um, chapter, like, there's one specific line, the, um, I, I know more than half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Um, I, I like how he's, a, he's sort of getting his message across while still stirring a bit of stuff up and making people feel good at the same time. <laughs> um, Reactions to that speech in general are just hilarious because <laughs> yeah. you really see that like gentle satire coming out <laughs> where it's like you know it's relatable because of how petty it is <laughs> like you're at this birthday party because you don't even know the guy very well and he's kind of weird and all he does is talk about himself but he throws a really good party and when you get to the part where he's like kind of talking about himself everyone just doesn't have a lot of patience with it it's just it's so funny I think like when he said that line he was like the hobbits weren't exactly sure what to think about that themselves what I I like about I like about that speech overall it's so funnily constructed because he starts out by complimenting them Right? Yeah. And everyone's like, this is great. He says things like, I will be brief. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it just starts to go slowly downhill. And that's, that's the funniest thing about it. Because he said he, like, he has that line, and it says, like, there was a smattering of applause, but, like, the hobbits, most of the hobbits were trying to figure, were, like, going through it and trying to figure out if it came out to a compliment. Um, and then he starts saying things like, I'm 111, Bilbo's 33, we've combined our ages, that's 144, your numbers have been chosen for this occasion. And it's like, yeah, most people were annoyed by that, because they started to feel like they were only there to fill, like, the number requirement. And then he says stuff like, it's been great to be here, but I'm leaving now, and he disappears, and everyone's, like, enraged by this. <laughs> how dare you? I think it's so funny, and I think I like how you can see, like, Tolkien is really adept at showing how the mood of 
the hop of the mood of the hobbits changes over the speech. It cracks me up. Going back to like hobbits and the other, there's that really wonderful line where the gaffer is like, and Mr. Bilbo has been teaching uh, my son how to read, and I hope no bad things come of it, but I'm sure it'll be fine, you know. Sam, my son's always talking about elves and dragons, and I'm like, Sam, cabbages and potatoes are better for the likes of you and me. Like, I love that. that I felt that was very just, I don't know, evocative of the way that, like... And then trouble will come of it if you're not careful. Again, and Sam yeah. went to Mount Doom. <laughs> Even, like, literacy is a weird, scary thing if you're not used to it. Yeah. It's not normal. So following on from that question then, or related to it, is this a different Bilbo? Has his characterization changed from what we saw in The Hobbit, for those of you who read The Hobbit with us last year, or if you're familiar with The Hobbit? This chapter is like often described as both an epilogue to The Hobbit and an introduction to The Lord of the Rings, which I think is a nice framing because it does really work both ways. Um, and I think what's really satisfying in it as a conclusion to The Hobbit, because it is really satisfying, is that you get to see Bilbo like perfectly in his element, where The Hobbit is continually like him being taken out of his element. This is now him being returned to his element with all the stuff that he's learned, and he's just able to pull off all this crazy stuff without a hitch. Like, this is Bilbo basically being the change that he wants, which is just, it's not nearly as radical as the change that Frodo and Sam are going to end up wanting in the Shire, but it's just like everything but a little bit weirder, and he's always sort of perfectly in control of things. It's very much the end of the hero's journey for Bilbo, eh? Um, like, he's, he starts with the status quo, goes through the whole adventure, comes back to the status quo, but the status quo slightly changed. Um, so, like, it's definitely a different Bilbo from the start of The Hobbit, um, in that the Bilbo who really had some trouble getting out the door um, to go on an adventure, to, uh, but I don't know if it's that much of a change other than just 60 years of age from Bilbo at the end of the Hobbit. Which is definitely interesting because, like, there's a huge focus in this chapter on lack of change in Bilbo's life. Like, I know that you're going to have a point later about, like, immortality or something, but the fact that one of the weirdest things about Bilbo is that he's not just well-preserved. He's literally unchanged. He literally looks exactly the same as he did when he came back from his adventure, which is a really weird concept to kind of try and wrap your head around. The fact that, like, he literally looks exactly the same. Like, he came back from his adventure, and then just the years keep passing and keep passing and keep passing, and nothing about Bilbo's appearance changes. And we know we know from the inside that his wealth is, is not inexhaustible, but it's like his appearance isn't changing, his wealth isn't changed, but it's just like, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to 
look at the fact that like externally Bilbo seems to not change at all, but internally we kind of know that he is. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it was weird because when I read it, read it again, because originally it was the end of the impression, well, like, yeah, he aged a bit, but it wasn't that much. But then I read it here, it was like, oh no, he just, he didn't. And that, yeah, that's, but it's also interesting to see, like, the people around him might not have even noticed it that much. Because, I mean, as you could know your person, like, you change and your perception of people changes. So people are like, wow, Bilbo looks really good. Rather than, wow, Bilbo looks identical to when he did 30 years ago. Any other thoughts on Bilbo characterization? How much did Bilbo like other hobbits in The Hobbit? So, like, I really liked your point earlier that... Uh, Bilbo seems to really care about the gifts he's giving. Um, and like when he says, uh, 11 to 1 years is far too short a time to spend with such excellent and adorable hobbits, I think he's being genuine. Like, I think he really likes his hobbits, even if his actual legacies are not. Is that the case before he leaves the Shire, do you think? It never says, but I assume it to be. Um. If only because hobbits appear to have a really strong hospitality tradition, um, and the Magnuses are well known, right? Like, Bilbo's wealth was vastly increased by his adventure, but he was, before that, still like a very well-to-do hobbit. Um, so he still would have been at least, um, conventionally positioned at the center of the community, right? I'm not convinced. Maybe not the wider Shire, the way he is when he comes back, but I think like his immediate community in Hobbiton, even if he wasn't as adventurous in going out, like he still would have had social convention to fulfill. He's still in Vega, after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Monroe. But like, he's also not doing what you typically would as a Hobbit of that age if you were fully involved in the community, namely getting married and having a family, like populating Bag End, which is a home made for a lot of people with more people. Um, Bilbo was just living there alone. And I do think, I don't know, I, I don't know where I'm getting this, but I do, I feel the opposite way. I feel like Bilbo is more connected when he comes back than before he left. Just kind of you get this weird vibe from him where you're more connected because you're going to be leaving soon. You care more than you did before and you're more invested at the same time that you're simultaneously drawing away. It's almost like the fact that that promise that you'll be able to retreat eventually makes you give more of yourself to your community. Um, Like Bilbo's whole party is like that, which I guess makes me feel that Bilbo himself was maybe kind of like that too. I don't know. I I would argue that he was less connected before and more connected after. I think I do know where you're getting that from. Okay. I think it's straight from on fairy stories. Okay. Um, There's Tolkien's lecture on the nature of fairy, and he's saying one of the primary purposes of fantasy is that you go in 
and it lets you come, it, you completely get immersed in the secondary creation and you suspend your disbelief. And then you come out and you can look at the world with fresh eyes again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the normal and it's amazing. Um, and so Bilbo can appreciate the Shire and appreciate even the Sackville Vaganses since he's been to airport. Um, so I, I, I do think like he's more connected than before he left. And I may be wrong about this, but I don't remember any talk in The Hobbit of Bilbo making a habit of going out to the inn to drink with people or visiting people. His kind of uh, routine was to hang out at home and be comfortable and entertain people if they showed up, which isn't a very active way of being connected, the same way that planning to throw big parties and exchanging presents with people is, I think. From the beginning, like the, the perception I got of him, the Hobbit is like this bachelor alone in this massive big house with not really much to do, but he kind of liked it that way. Which, I mean, it seems sort of like, oh, that's a very Hobbity thing to do. But then when you look at the rest of Hobbit, and he was like, he never really was a very normal Hobbit from the get go. Um, so. I think it's also like. I can also make the argument that it's only after he comes back that Bilbo feels the need to bring another person into his life. That's true. Which he never had before. But when he comes back and, I don't know, when the opportunity comes to adopt a nephew, he's like, yes, I want another person around. Yeah. I actually have a question to pose to the people, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, why do you think Bilbo never married? I shouldn't have said what I said. <laughs> I mean, there's Tumblr's theory, but... <laughs> What's Tumblr's theory? That he was gay for Thorin? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah definitely knows that after all the fan art she looked through. <laughs> I can confirm. constant attention. 
And I think also he knows that he wants to leave permanently. He doesn't want to uh, die in the in the Shire, so that's not fair to anybody else. And he even waits until Frodo comes of age before he before he takes off. I listen to Frodo's narrative. Is like, would Frodo really have been able to go to Mordor if he had a mum and like five brothers at home? It's like that's why all the fantasy protagonists are orphans. They don't have the family, the traditional family unit holding them back. Well, I mean, it's interesting though because like Tolkien has said a few times that like Sam is the real protagonist, and Sam is the one with the traditional family unit. I mean, he also like I don't know. Lord of the Lord of the Rings is nice because Sam having like a family actually does kind of make him stronger. Like he has memories of playing with his siblings and like with the Cotton Kids when he's in Mordor, which is quite interesting. So he has that connection to home. He's he spouts off the gaffers like sayings a lot, and that's obviously like a source of help to him so the fact that he had a really strong parental figure which isn't to say that Frodo does worse because he doesn't have one because he does he has Bilbo but I don't know also Frodo kind of like brings his household right <laughs> like he doesn't have a big household but Frodo's like well I gotta take the ring and he brings Sam <laughs> his single servant and his two cousins, who are technically of a higher rank than him, but are also younger than him. So, like, you, you even see in this first chapter, like, Mary acting on his behalf, right? Um, so there's very much this relationship where you can kind of see Mary and Pippin in and out of Bag End. Um, learning some of the things about being a grown-up from Frodo, from, from an older cousin, right? And so really... Frodo doesn't have parents or siblings to take with him, but he does leave and take his entire household with him, um, in a sense, and that changes a bit of the dynamic, especially in this first book. I'm going to push this forward a bit, because um, I want to talk about the party before I get to the really difficult question. Um, Bilbo talks about like the point of the party. And the point of the party and giving away all the presents really being about making it easier to give away the ring. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so we know kind of an in-universe purpose of having such a big party. But narratively, what purpose does the party serve? And is it fulfilled? And also, why does Tolkien write an unsatisfactory party? So that's one of the things that's notable about it, is that everyone's having a really great time, then Bilbo disappears, and all the guests leave unsatisfied. And then they show up at his house the next morning and leave unsatisfied from there, too. Why? Why does Tolkien write an unsatisfactory party at the beginning of this book? Um... Because Bilbo... I think because Bilbo wants to leave open ends very obviously like wants to be the talk of the town wants to just disappear he wants 
like a satisfying farewell, but a satisfying farewell on his terms. And satisfying for Bilbo means leaving everyone else with unanswered questions and will never get satisfying answers to. Yeah, to me it kind of felt like I'm gonna leave, but I'm gonna stick my memory so deeply in these people's minds that they'll be talking about it until I'm long, long dead. <laughs> they'll talk about that night I just dropped off and disappeared and everyone was so angry. <laughs> he was not planning for his nephew to become more famous than him. No. <laughs> he was not. I think again it would be helpful to go back to the hero's journey. So um, the Tolkien's at the start of the narrative and he needs to establish the status quo um, clearly and he needs to establish this is where the protagonists are coming from. Um, and what's the best way to give a an event which establishes Hobbit culture? Alright. Um, that that gives like the the ideal life that Frodo's coming out of is, you know, good food, good friends, and occasionally a great party. Um, so so there's that. He's just establishing the status quo for Frodo to return to, but it's not a perfect status quo. That's why it's unsatisfied. Um, because, well, because the status quo can't be perfect um, until you come back full circle from the hero's journey to come back to the status quo with a new, whatever it might be, with new eyes. It works well with just the general melancholy of this chapter. Like, it's incredibly happy and incredibly sad at the same time. It's wrapping up Bilbo's story, but it's opening Frodo's story which means that just kind of almost everything in the chapter is both a very satisfying ending and something that leaves you unsettled. Um, and the party is like that too, where like it's really satisfying that Bilbo gets to have this last goodbye um, on his own terms, but you're also really unsettled because of all the stuff with the ring and with Bilbo not having changed and feeling like butter stretched too far over bread. So the fact that even the party has these really like mixed feelings um, is very, very suitable. Um, I mean, also it's a pun on the party. Yes, um, I kind of like that, what you said about it's opening Frodo's stories, so the satisfying parts of the party are only ever on Bilbo's end, and all the guests leave unsatisfied and show up looking for answers at his house the next day, which Frodo has to deal with. Bilbo just leaves, he must have kind of suspected or wanted that as an effect, and he leaves that for Frodo to deal with, and the whole mess of the the notes and the, the will, and he just dumps Frodo right in that. And so that's, that's really driving the point of at the end of Bilbo's story, in his mind at least, but he's almost opening it for Frodo. There's a lot of, like, death parallels in this chapter. Like, you would almost get the exact same effect if Bilbo had actually died in the middle of his party in terms of leaving Frodo with his affairs. Um, yeah, I mean, the fact that he's nearing the end of his life and leaving Frodo to deal with his absence and also the embarking on a new journey stuff. 
jump from there. Because um, in the letters that we read, conveniently last week, because they're the first letters that I've read in like three months, um, Tolkien writes a couple letters to people about what he thinks the actual theme of Lord of the Rings is. Um, and he says the actual theme of Lord of the Rings is death and immortality. Um, how does that theme start in this chapter? Um, how, is, how does this chapter kick that off? Yes, Sophie. I like that Bilbo is immortalized in the story. Also that Bilbo sort of has a weird bit of immortality over him that can be shown to sort of have effects on his psyche and the way that it works. And even how it seems like it's not just the unchanging of his physical appearance, but something fundamentally isn't changing within him, like he's working on less and less and that's affecting him psychologically. I have no idea why that happens. I don't know if anybody's studied the psychology of ring bearers. I mean, they probably have. Um, it probably wouldn't be that hard to figure out, but there's something going on with his mind that is changing and making him feel uncomfortable. Um, we do get a contrast of like premature death being tragic with Frodo's parents, but also uh, postponing death, so death not at the right time, being uh, a sort of burden. And not, not satisfying either. Yeah. The way that Bilbo feels he's butter stretched over too much bread. That was where that was where I was like, we have to talk about this. Um, is so it's such a parallel to the way that Tolkien talks about death and immortality, like in Silmarillion. Um, where death is a gift, right? Elves, elves call death the gift of men. Um, and there's a very real sense that Tolkien... Tolkien's like, immortality would be just exhausting. And he's very particular about making sure that everyone knows that. Um, like, it's, it's a vibe that you get from most of the elves, too, that you encounter over the course of these books, is that they're all just tired. Um, and Bilbo embodies that in the same way. Um, which I think makes the very end of Return of the King particularly poignant, because like, same thing happens to Bilbo and the elves. But, yes, so from there. So this is it, like, really on a nitpicky grounds, but I would disagree that Bilbo is tired in the same way as the elves. Um, what's interesting is that the elves are the elves are tired and so they don't want to really do anything else. Bilbo is clearly yearning for change. Bilbo is like tired like Bilbo is tired of being in the world. So that I guess that is similar to the elves. But at the same time, like, Bilbo's like, I want to see mountains again. And you get that sort of sense of age from how much Bilbo's stuck in a rut. Like, he's tired of the same old circles that his life is going in, and he wants something new. 
and that's sort of paralleled with the ring. Um, and the fact that like he's his he's stuck like to the ring, like his possessiveness to the ring is actively holding him back. Um, and he talks to Gandalf about that, where it's like, yeah, it, it actually is starting to be a problem because I'm always worried about where it is. I can't leave it. So there's that sense that he wants, what he really, really wants is to be able to just leave everything behind and just go, just, you know, experience something else. I think that's totally right. Um, but I like that Tolkien's able to do that, where you can say, um, this, what you're experiencing here in the Shire isn't enough for you. Um, death is a gift. Death is a good thing. And he does that all without saying these material things are bad, or like normal good pleasures aren't good, right? Because like, other philosophies that will praise death, like um, the Gnostics, um, of the early centuries, or Alvin Jensen's 13th century, or even Schopenhauer's 17th, no, sorry, 18th. Um, it's, it's always like, life's useless, there's no, you can't be happy in life, life is suffering, and anything in it just sucks. Um, so you might as well kill yourself, which occasionally they do. But um, Tolkien's not saying that. He's like, these are all very good things. Parties are great, pipeweed's great, friends are great, but but they're never gonna quite be enough for you. And if you get attached to them, like you get attached to the ring, then it's not gonna work. You need something more. Even the mountains aren't gonna be enough. Mountain image actually reminds me a lot of Leaf by Nickel, hmm. which is like, if you haven't read Leaf by Nickel, it's really hard to explain, but it's kind of like, this guy dies leaving his life's work unfinished and then goes to purgatory and then eventually gets to pass on to heaven. Heaven in this case is like a garden. And so he's like gardening it with his friend. Um, but there's that, so there's that implication. Like he was painting a tree and there was like this perfect tree, but he kept being distracted by like little details and never finishing the big picture. And one of the little details was that, like, there's all the stuff behind the tree. Like, oh, there's a mountain way off in the distance. Like, there's a mountain range. Um, and then when he is in the heaven place, like, it's his artistic vision, but realized. So he's, like, able to make the tree perfect. And past the tree, there's a forest. And eventually, like, as him and his friend make this place, like, a more beautiful and beautiful garden, like, he starts to wander farther and farther until at the very end, he's like, I'm ready to move on and I'm going to head for the mountains. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is intensely interesting also because like mountains are like a heaven thing in The Great Divorce too. So it's just like, I don't know, Tolkien and Lewis both really like mountains or something. Because <laughs> that's the goal of The Great Divorce too is like, oh yeah, here you are, gotta get to the mountains. That's where we're all going. It's really weird. Great Divorce is really interesting if you're interested in C.S. Lewis's perspectives on heaven and ideas of possibilities about heaven. Um, but if you're not, it's just really weird. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, well, what is 
this book. <laughs> it's just amazing all the way around. It's, it's just great. Um, anything else? Death, immortality. some characterization because, of course, this is the first chapter that's going to set up the whole book. Um, and we've met four members of the Fellowship. Sam, Frodo, Gandalf, Mary. Um, what is the first thing about each of these characters that Tolkien brings to our attention, and why? Introduces Gandalf is firstly he's old, and secondly he makes fires and smokes that makes all the children and people in the town very happy. Mm -hmm. So um, that sort of gives the idea that he's very wise. He knows a lot, and also he is sort of skilled in helping people, sort of indirectly. Gandalf is still very much described as just just the old man, you know, just just the party trick guy, uh, and, and his true power and his true identity are very much hidden um, due to just the, the um, quotidianness, I don't know, um, the, uh, the everydayness of the Shire. Um, so, it, it, but I think that's, that there's two reasons why Tolkien's doing that, where Gandalf is still very much restrained. One is because of the Shire and to show what the Shire is. Um, but secondly, to allow a lot of build-up later in the story as to Gandalf's actual power and throwing off the robes and sorry, when your stuff is broken. <laughs> um, and so on. So it, it's Gandalf's still hidden. Yeah, I guess with Gandalf, I, I don't know our exact textual evidence for why, <laughs> and it's also been a while since I've read The Hobbit, so I that, but I got the sense from him in his like conversations, but also the first kind of when he shows up with the fireworks cart, is he seems very distracted and uninvested in the Shire. Like he's the outsider in contrast to the normality, but in he doesn't when he's first presented does not satisfy the children that all know him at all. Like, yeah, G for Grant. He's kind of like, yep, yep, you'll, you'll see fireworks later. <laughs> and then when he's having a conversation with Bilbo, after Bilbo has had his speech at the party, and, and he's holding, like, they're both concerned about the writer Gandalf is holding back his actual knowledge of the events behind it from Bilbo, even though Bilbo's kind of cottoned on a little, but it's changing at least him. And then with Frodo again, Gandalf rushes off kind of mysterious without much explanation that he got a sense that he was very concerned about the bigger unfolding plot even in this beginning for the bigger unfolding plot becomes apparent in the yeah. story. That's a good point. Uh, so, you know, 
Like, you don't really find out until he's talking to other people or until later how much Gandalf really likes hobbits. Just like a weird thing to question. But in The Hobbit, he just sort of comes and takes Bilbo and is like, no, like, get on your way. Like, I need you. He doesn't. I mean, you know that he occasionally, like, gets hobbits and spirits them away on adventures and that he's friends with certain specific hobbits, but you don't get the sense that you'll get later in Fellowship that Gandalf really loves hobbits and really sees the Shire as, like, a good thing that he likes being able to go back to and just kind of have a holiday from the worries of the world because no one, you know... Everyone there just has incredibly petty concerns, and Gandalf actually kind of loves that. I don't know. Yeah. We're looking, by the way, you missed it, at uh, first in, the first impression that we're given of each of the Fellowship characters that shows up in this chapter. So Gandalf, Sam, Mary, Okay, yeah. Cool. Really important thing about Gandalf that um, actually kind of ties into a bit of the immortality stuff, too, is he seems very distant in sort of the way he interacts with a lot of people. And at least when I was reading it, um, you almost get the sense that he's filled with so many things and so many moving parts trying to get together that it's almost difficult for him to take a step back and actually go into his surroundings because he's so caught up in um, all the possibilities and all the things of thousands of years that are finally coming together. What about any of the other characters? Well, despite the fact that I just characterized Sam as the Hobbit's Hobbit, he's also immediately characterized as weird by Hobbit's tendencies. Yeah. Um, by his father, who's like, I don't know what to do with my son, who's literate and likes elves <laughs> and dragons. Like, that's weird for a Hobbit. <laughs> so he's immediately a weird Hobbit for his interest in the outside and his interest for like change as well. Yeah. Yes, Rob. But at the same time, he's uh, characterized as carrying on tradition, which is probably important. Not to not to just abandon everything because he's taking over the family business and keeping up the good old Hobbit standard, but still open to the other. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's, it's kind of hinted, like, the way he's described. I mean, it's like, Bilbo's really great. He might be poisoning the mind of my son a little bit, but he's a really good man, and I like him, but I don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> <laughs> possibly be corrupting my child, but I'm all right with it. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I hope. But it's good, because he's really good friends with Master Frodo. Like, I am with Master Bilbo, so we're carrying on this tradition. I just, it's really interesting in light of the series and like the greatest social mobility of any character is Sam Gamgee who if he hadn't left the Shire and if it hadn't been for Frodo also leaving the Shire Sam would have done exactly what his father did like he would have been the gardener his whole life but as it is Frodo moves him and his entire family into Bag End. His entire family becomes the people of Bag End. Um, Sam becomes the mayor, and Sam's 
children become some of the greatest record keepers in The Hobbit. Like, you get that in Concerning Hobbits, but where they talk about, like, the Fairbairns of the Westmarch, who have, like, the third greatest, like, Hobbit family, that is specifically the family founded by Eleanor Gamgee, so Sam and Rosie's kid, and Faramir Took, so Pippin's son, who get married and then, like, go off to the far downs and set up a hobbit colony there. And also, according to Concerning Hobbits, have the best library. Yeah. I want to identify Mary real quick, because you don't find out too much about her. You're just barely introduced to Mary Huck. Um, and what I think is interesting about that is that because you only hear about Sam from secondhand sources, even though later on Sam is the one who is most characterized by being loyal to Frodo, the first person you see with that quality is Mary. Um, Mary, who's screening Frodo's calls and helping Frodo throw people out of his basement. <laughs> And basically getting Frodo through the day. And it's interesting to see that... The, this kind of relates to what I was saying before about Frodo kind of bringing his whole household with him. Um, is, that the, is that Mary serves a very different purpose in his loyalty to Frodo than Sam does. Sam couldn't be Frodo's call screener. He doesn't have the social position for it. So he's good at the more practical elements of getting Frodo through everything in Frodo's life that's super depressing and difficult. Um, but he can't be the social representative, either of Frodo or the Shire, and Mary can. And it's interesting to see how Mary and Pippin both take on that position later on as well. Right? You see Mary first in this very small position, um, but definitely doing all that social relations work um, that comes of being comfortable with diplomacy and talking, talking jobs that comes of being rich, right? And later on, doing the exact same thing with King Theoden of Rohan. <laughs> I was going to say, like, from last while, Mary's remarkably unchanged. Yeah. That's his Mary does the whole That's the thing, about, the thing about Mary and Pippin, and, like, Pippin, too, is young, but I'm, like, looking at Mary and Pippin as people of stature in the Shire, because it makes everything makes so much more sense and also be hilarious. And just how competent. Mary's just very competent all the time. Flip side of that is, um... I'd say our main characterization of Frodo is that he's someone people, someone who people, to whom people are loyal. Mm -hmm. um, like he doesn't really, um, he doesn't really do a ton, um, except like Bilbo and like Gandalf and have friends, um, but friends are open. So, yeah, people yeah. are loyal to Frodo. I don't know why. And also. Sets up with the competency of everything around Frodo. Frodo seems very incapable of handling his his day to day physical affairs, which is expected because of his status. But also, he doesn't handle his own kind of the public 
relations side of very well, and that can be excused in this chapter, I guess, because kind of like he's mourning Nova, but he needs people to screen his stuff and to help him deal with all the people in his house. He's just very passive for, for the protagonist and for like the great heir to Bilbo. He's kind of passively characterized in the first character. It's true. One of the first things that you that you see of Frodo um, is at the party, right? He's just like sitting there, and he mentions that Frodo is coming to his inheritance, and Frodo doesn't stand up. Frodo doesn't take any recognition from that moment. Everyone else recognizes recognizes him on his behalf. You get some polite clapping from the older people who may have wanted to inherit that same thing. <laughs> And the, the Frodo, Frodo, jolly old Frodo from all the younger people, but Frodo's just like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Frodo himself is deep in thought, which everyone else is saying things about Frodo, and Frodo's deep in thought is also very Frodo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's thinking about Bobo. Which honestly, I think, makes it interesting um, to contrast with our first glimpses of Frodo in the movie. I just thought of this. But, like, your first glimpses of Frodo in the movie are similar. Like, you've got his introduction when he meets Gandalf. um, But then when you see him at the party, like, you do see him kind of doing the same thing throughout. Every time he shows up in the party, he's managing it. Like, he is telling people what to do, and he knows what's going on, but he's not really invested in it. Every time you see him, he's kind of doing that thing where you're like, yeah, yeah, get more wide, and then he's definitely got somewhere else to be at every moment. Um, so, yeah, Frodo's kind of off in his own little world. Picked it up from Bilbo. Yeah, that's probably why, like, Bilbo likes him. Mm-hmm. Is that he thinks <laughs> yeah. he's not very good at living in the moment. Absolutely. I think again, like one of the things that set Frodo and uh, Bilbo apart from the rest of the hobbits is a lot of hobbits just think out loud to other people, whereas Bilbo and Frodo are much more prone to introspection, which uh, is uh, seen as a very sort of strange thing in the hobbit world. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of place for, like, silence in the Hobbit world. I might hesitate about that, um, just because they're so close to nature. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, and that tends to go hand in hand with silence. Right? Like, that, that's the main problem. I, one of the main problems Tolkien has with industrialization is it's so dang noisy. One of these cars outside my office. Um, <laughs> there's, there's definitely a sense that parties are loud, but general Hobbit life is pretty quiet. Garden is going to be pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's kind of the thing about hobbits, I guess, and then relating it to the, the death and immortality theme again. There's a real sense of, like, with parties it's loud, but eventually the loudness has to end or it becomes intolerable, and it's only good as long as it's finite and tangibly finite, whereas you can experience and anticipate the end of it. And so that's that's there with the, the actual parties, but also 